Hello, everyone. Good to, good to be together. Um, as you can see, they'll let anyone preach these days. Um, it's fantastic to be together. Uh, we are going to continue our uh, journey through Nehemiah. But before I do, I want us to give you some family news. When we go outside to the bra there, you'll see Johan Otto, who's often there at the bra. He's got sort of peroxided boy band 80s hairstyle, if you just look out for it. Um, it'll be his last Sunday with us. He is a nuclear engineer, believe it or not, and he's worked for many years at Kuburg, keeping the lights on. Uh, but he's felt in God a new season to relocate to the Netherlands, where he'll be helping them keep their consistent power going. I <laughs> uh, don't know why he'd want to do that, but uh, he, did, he did crack a joke and say, no, I'm there to actually help introduce a few gremlins just to keep them on their toes. That, that was his kind of, they don't know it, but I'm actually here to uh, create havoc. But um, if you do know Johan, he's been a dear member of our family, gone through some incredible life events in this community, some real low lows, but yet has plugged in community, heard from God. And so please do, um, he said, the greatest gift of all would, you, would be you buying a Burrible's roll from him before he leaves. Yeah. Um, guys, I'm going to put up a quote from our business breakfast that we um, recently had in the hall. The quote goes as follows. As leaders, and that's all of us, right? We've all got influence in different spaces. We often spend too much time admiring our problems instead of solving them. We spend too much time admiring our problems instead of solving them. A psychological term for this is learned helplessness. Learned helplessness, kind of like, there's even an emoji for it. I couldn't do it fully because my hand's holding the microphone. And let's face it, as South Africans right now, having sort of just crawled through COVID, we are faced with a power supply that's inconsistent. Um, still a massively high unemployment rate, a lot of red tape if you're trying to do business. And this week, just to add an extra curveball, um, a rand dollar exchange rate, which looks like it'll hit 30 faster than it'll hit 15. In this environment, it gets quite easy to just admire our problems and go, it is what it is. And that, that helplessness can then develop into cynicism, where we start to believe that actually... It's not just that there's no hope. There will never, ever be hope. And when someone comes up and says, I have a dream, we're going to turn this around. A part of you goes, oh, I remember when I was young once too. I was naive. Don't worry. Stick around long enough. This place will wear you down. I was in exclusive books uh, the other day, and I remember an old man chatting and grumpy, 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 and they're chatting to the thing. And he said, well, what do we do about it? The kind of exclusive books guy like, was like, what do we do about it? And the guy said, well, I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't immigrate because I tried that. Like a fool, I immigrated. And then like a fool, I came back. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I was like, what an interesting conversation. What an interesting guy. It's just, it's just a, quite an interesting space where we can become professional problem admirers. And this, by the way, can happen in a life of faith as well as we walk with God. We can come up against certain things which mystify us and leave us feeling perhaps without hope. This morning, I'd love to declare war on learned helplessness this morning. The sense of there's nothing I can do. Viktor Frankl, who wrote uh, the book, the, the, um, what was the book called? The Meaning of the Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. Having been in concentration camp, he came up with this interesting thought. It, what it means to be human is to live in the gap between stimulus and response. So things happen to us all the time, stimulus. But here's what it means to be human. You get to choose your response. Many other beings that God created don't choose. There's this instinct that kicks in and they just respond. But what it means to be human, made in the image of God, means that we can choose and we can fill that gap between stimulus and response with things like hope. 
with things like purpose. And I want to activate that space in you today. I want to say, let's activate that space. We're no longer slaves to what might happen in our nation. We're no longer slaves to what might happen in our families and the generations that have formed part of our DNA as we sit here today. And what we're going to do to activate that space is we're going to look at someone, Nehemiah, who thousands of years was able to overcome hopelessness. He was able to overcome all the stimulus that was hitting him that was incredibly unfavorable. Just a reminder, the people of God had walked away from God for a long time, like all of us have, and were then sent into exile for 70 years. They were taken out of Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace, and they were put in a place called Babylon. And God, as he promised, said, I'm going to send you back because I'm not done with you yet. I've made a promise to you, I've covenanted with you that through you, I'm going to bless the nation. And we know that that would be Jesus coming in a few hundred years' time. But for now, he needs to get the city ready for Jesus coming. He needs to get the people ready for Jesus coming. And so he sends back wave upon wave of exile. The first wave comes, and they manage to rebuild the temple. The next wave comes, they manage to reset the priesthood of the people. But here's the tragedy. The city itself is still empty because the walls have collapsed. Imagine going to bed at night with all your windows and doors open. That would be what it would be like to live in Jerusalem. So no one did it. No one lived in Jerusalem. Very few people lived there. They all lived on the outskirts. And Nehemiah was devastated by that. And he said, no, the people of God must act. They must close this gap and they must rebuild the city walls. And so he leaves a comfortable life. He's never been to Jerusalem. He's the cupbearer, but he's gonna, he's gonna take action. While other people have lived in that city for 70 years with the walls down and have kind of just learned to kind of get used to it. No, it's just the way it is here in Jerusalem. The walls kind of situation, but poor, not good. He's, he's going he's gonna to do something else. So as we looked at last week, he was stirred by holy ambition. He asked the right question. He said, but isn't this the God that promised we would be rebuilt? How's it going? How's that project going? He saw it wasn't going well, so he sat with that burden for a long time. We said over four months, he prayed to God, he fasted, and as we said, he took the first step. So here's the thesis, if you're joining us here for the first time. The thesis is that God has got something inside each and every one of us, which we've noticed. There's something we've noticed. And he's placed holy ambition inside of us, an ambition that says it shouldn't be like this. And that holy ambition now turns to holy action. And so that's what we're going to be looking at now. We're going to be looking at holy action. If you're new to a church environment, you'll notice that, whoa, that, 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 that doesn't sound very Buddhist, for instance. If you're used to Eastern mysticism, the whole idea here is you're supposed to get rid of desire. You're not, desire's an illusion, but what we're seeing here is that God's, no, God's put desires in us. They aren't illusions. Those are realities that give you a clue as to what your purpose is. So we're going to read chapter two together now. Get comfy. It's a long read. The first bit is our cupbearer still in Jerusalem. He's going to plead with the king. He's going to be quite bold. He's going to say, please, I need to go rebuild it. And then the next half is him having done a long journey arriving in Jerusalem. So let's go for it. In the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I'd not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Whew, then I was very afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the father of my, uh, the, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire, then the king said to me, "What are you requesting?" So I prayed to the God of heaven, that's known as the famous arrow prayer. He kind of shoots up an arrow, and I said to the king, "If it pleases the king, 
And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen um, sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So please the king to send me when I had given him a time. By the way, that time ends up being 12 years. So he's asking for 12 years paid leave, right? Quite a, quite a, bold, quite a bold move. And, um, and just to give you an idea, he's not done yet. Just keep reading, verse seven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. <laughs> Bold, right? And the king granted me what I asked for, and for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen, so an armed guard had joined him. But when Sanballat the Horonites and Tobiah the Amorites' servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley, inspected the wall, turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How South Africa, sorry, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And I said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite servant and, and Geshem, third guy now added into the mix, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word to us today. Holy action, holy action taken by Nehemiah to help teach us how we ourselves can combat learned helplessness, how we can cure our cynicism, fill the gap between uh, I mean, stimulus and response with, with holy action. I think there are three things, three things we can learn from Nehemiah as we study God's word together. If you want to take holy action and you're stirred today by something, can I ask you to firstly develop clarity of vision? Develop clarity of vision. 
You see, Nehemiah was in, God, uh, was in the king's presence, and he was sad. He'd been fasting and praying for 100 days. A feast presents itself, and the king picks up that he's not happy. Now, that, by the way, is a big problem, because anyone who's allowed access to the king should be happy. It's like, hey, you're with me. You should be happy. And so there's a, there's a treacherous moment right now where there's an inquiry made saying, you're not happy. What's going on? But something of the holy ambition has taken hold of Nehemiah. He wants to rebuild his city, and, and while he's here that holy discontent is going to leak, which is what happens. It's brave to be sad in the presence of this king. And the king, obviously having worked with him for years, leans in, notices, and then says, what are you requesting? There it is. What are you requesting? At this point, does, does uh, Nehemiah go, what? Oops, and, and knock the ball on? No, no, no. He's developed a clear vision. He spent a lot of time. You can't fake this. He's really heard from God for over 100 days. And he's got a clear idea of what he wants to do. He wants to go back to Judah. He wants to rebuild the walls. How long? It's kind of a very practical question from the king. And he says, 12 years, timeline. And then I'll be back. I want to be made governor. I want to see it right. I want to make sure it gets all the way through. And then I'll come back to you. And while we're chatting, king, while, while we're talking vision and what's possible, I'd like to also just let you know that in thinking it through, I need some letters to the people beyond, you know, the, the, beyond the river. That's a little bit like those maps where they didn't know what was going on, and then they wrote, they're like, here be dragons. I don't know if you've seen those old maps. It's a little bit of what beyond the river was. We don't know what's going to happen there, so please just give me letters for those guys. This journey is over 1,600 kilometers. It's going to take him four months to get there at the speed of camel. Um, it's not a quick thing. And when I get there, I'm going to need timber. I'm going to need resources, not just for the gates and the walls, but also for my own home. I think there's a potential lesson here that if we feel God's speaking and we believe we're acting in his will, let's go big when seeking to achieve what God's placed in our hearts when, when taking gospel action. Uh, without knowing it, Artaxerxes, who had earlier in Ezra 4, when we were looking earlier this year, had rejected the exact same thing. They'd written and said, they're rebuilding. What do you think, Artaxerxes? Artaxerxes said, no, they must stop. The same, the same king who'd said stop is now saying, go ahead take 12 years paid leave, here's letters of commendation to everyone beyond the river, and also here's some timber. That same king has effectively become a gospel patron. He's, he's financed the whole thing. Quite incredible. How do, you, how do you get clarity of vision, you might ask? But just a reminder that you don't fake it. There are no shortcuts here. You seek God. You seek his presence. As a community, we often say we, we're apprentices of Jesus, seeking the presence of God, seeking to be formed in the image of Christ, and seeking to live missional lives as an embodied community. Well, that's, that's, that's what Nehemiah's doing. He's getting clarity from God. He's hearing his voice louder than anything else. And interestingly, he does it slightly differently to Ezra. Let me just quickly show you. They both love God. They both go back. Israel is offered an armed guard to go back because he's bringing all the gold and all the stuff to rebuild the temple. You know what Ezra thinks? He says, no, how weenie would I look if I accepted an armed guard? I'd be, a, I'd be saying that my God isn't strong enough. So Ezra says, no, no armed guard. And then he gives all the gold to the priest and says, good luck. <laughs> and he travels and they arrive safely. Nehemiah, on the other hand, hears God, is offered an armed guard. And what does he say? He says, yes, I'll take it. How awesome of God. He's provided letters for timber and an armed guard. Brilliant. I'll take them. Now, here's the interesting thing. Ezra and Nehemiah could have blogged against each other. 
could have had a whole war about armed God versus no armed God. I have more faith. No, you have more faith. There could have been a whole thing, you know, T-shirts, caps. The whole thing could have been blown up around this division of who's right and who's wrong. That's the point. When God speaks to you, you follow what God says to you, and you, you trust God. And sometimes you're going to differ with other brothers and sisters, and you don't treat them as the enemy, and you don't get all divisive, and you don't make that the whole point. You keep your eye on what God's saying, and you hear Him in community, and you journey together. So clarity of vision doesn't mean copying someone else. It's hearing God and sometimes differing, but saying, this is what I feel God's saying and, and doing it. Turning to action. Clarity of vision, can I confess, is sometimes hard for me because here's how I like to dream. I like to dream, okay, what can I do? Like what, like what is achievable given who I am? And then please, let's just do that. I like a good win. I like a tick of a to-do list, right? I like achieving things. If you told me, travel 1,600 kilometers, you don't have the resources, you've got to go to the king who last time said no, I'd go like, not perhaps within my circle of competence. I, I, like, a, I like a vision that's achievable. I dial myself in first, and, and only once that happens will I then dial God in. Can you see how that would lead to such a limited life? How, how Nehemiah is not going, what can I do? He's going, what's God calling me to do? And he's going to equip me as I do that. Another problem with me besides just dialing myself in, is that I don't like to do anything where I have to trust other people. Like the thing would fail if there weren't other people. I don't mind working with other people, but generally it's like, oh, they're going to supplement what I'm not going to achieve. Have you ever done something where it's like, well, without these guys really hitting it, we're not going to achieve it. Nehemiah needed a team to rebuild that wall. And he didn't back off and go, oh, don't do it. He, he trusted that God was going to put the right people around him. So, when Jesus walked this earth, he would often ask people quite a penetrating question. He'd ask this question, what is it you want? What is it you want? And many people would say, I want to be healed. I want to be delivered. I, I want my daughter or my son to be healed. They had an answer for him. How about us today? If Jesus was with us now and he looked at you and he said, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? What would you say? What would you say? Sometimes, when we ask each other questions, it's like, what are your holiday plans? It's like, Brr, there it is, baby, till 2025. Uh, what are your work plans? Brr, there it is, that's the tactic, retiring then, that's the thing. What about, what about your faith life? What about your walk with God? And at that moment, it's like, oh, oh, I haven't, I haven't really got major things. I'm, I'm a little bit unsure about other religions and how that works out, so I'm kind of just, it's kind of just, it's not something in, of an area of ambition, of, of like really being able to answer Jesus if he was with us. And so do you have clarity of vision of what it would be like to be an apprentice of Jesus, to be hearing God's word, to be shaped by him and to be doing the things he's uniquely called you to do? And can I say that, that hearing God's word at an initial level can be, can be quite spellbinding and quite quick because God's made himself known through his word. I mean, if you're saying finances, Paul, I, like it's such a mess in my life. It's not a blessing. And now this next interest rate thing has happened. And oh my gosh, how, how bad has it been? And I'm under pressure. Well, there's wisdom in God's word around our relationship with debt and, and financial wisdom that we as a community can share so that this area becomes an area of blessing. It's in God's word around how to do that. And then kicking on after having done that, there's, a, there's learnings around how to bless financially beyond ourselves. But straight away, there's some things that are clear around, around God's word, around finances. Or how about relationships? You're saying, Paul, I'm, I'm bitter with all these people. I've got all these enemies. I've got fractured relationships. And again, it's not hard initially to step in and to say, well, let's, let's get clarity of vision for what God has for relationships and how we can do that better. 
before we have to hear higher kind of relationship things, there's a whole bunch of stuff we can do as a community where we one another each other and we forgive one another and we love one another and we encourage one another. So developing a clarity of vision is not as hard as it might initially think. It's like, what's my wall? It's like, okay, yeah, we can get there. But it's like, we know how we can treat each other in community and how we can live our lives financially. There's things we can get clarity of vision for. The second thing from Nehemiah, that was the longest point you'll be relieved to know. The second thing is that we've got a call to guard our vision, to guard the vision. Now, this might not seem like an obvious thing, but notice that when hitting opposition and hard times, he doesn't blast the trumpet and overpromise and underdeliver. He arrives in Jerusalem in quite an underwhelming way. He arrives, and the first thing he does is he rests for three days. He's been traveling for four months every day. Can you imagine unpacking and then packing back up and traveling on his camel? And so holy action now, you'd imagine, would be like, okay, I'm finally here. Let's go. But what, I, what does he actually do? He, he rests for three days. Holy action doesn't mean that you ignore your physical limits. I remember when I was an energetic student meeting Rigby, who planted Common Ground Church many years ago, and I was, you know, quite enthusiastic about what I, what I could do. And I remember him just saying, hey, Paul, have you slept have you, properly? Have you exercised properly? Have you been eating healthily? And I remember being like, what's this got to do with anything? You know, I'm, I'm going to change the world. And he, he was just, just, just checking. Like, you, you're not trying to operate out of exhaustion here. You've, you're living your life wisely. And we see it. Holy action doesn't ignore our physical limits. He rests for three days. And then he gets up at night with just a few people. And he tells no one what God's put in his heart for Jerusalem. He arrives. He kind of under-promises. He guards his heart. And you've got to wonder a little bit, why? Why? I mean, modern day now, I think the wisdom would be, okay, before you even start the journey, you should live blog the whole event. You know, social media along the way, like T minus three months on my way. You know, there's this like communication principles. What is this? This is like the opposite. There's something going on here. He's guarding this vision that God's placed inside of him, this precious thing. Where would he have maybe got this idea? Well, perhaps Proverbs 4, verse 23, where it says, above all else. Now, there's a lot of things in life. Above all else, though, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. There's something here that's precious that's need to be guarded. You need to seek God's presence to hear and speak speak to your heart. And by the way, your heart doesn't mean just your emotion. It's your, it's your logic. The term at the time meant like your soul almost, like bring it all together. What God's saying to you in that place, be very careful that you don't just spray it all over the place. Because here's the deal. You will face opposition and you don't want to face opposition right at the start where you can get beaten down, where you can get beaten down. How many of you in your life have kind of had a vision and thought, I'm going to do this. And you tell them, it's like, not going to work. Have you thought about load shedding? You know, and you just kind of, uh, and you just feel the energy just dive versus saying, no, this, I feel God's called me to this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to investigate at nighttime, undercover. I'm going to go look at how this works. I'm going to go learn from other people. I'm going to guard what's in my heart. The research, by the way, is catching up with this. Psychological research shows if you declare to everyone, I'm going to run a marathon, everyone celebrates you. Have you even trained yet? No. And what the problem is, you get such a kick out of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to run a marathon. You end up never running the marathon compared to someone who says nothing and then just goes and runs the marathon. It's quite an interesting effect that there's some kind of a thing inside of us that once we declare it, we think we've achieved it even though we haven't. So, 
Guarding your heart is not such an unwise thing to do. And in life, guys, as South Africans, there will be opposition. There are going to be words of discouragement. There's going to be jeering. There's going to be rejection. And that ratio of praise to criticism is just never equal, right? <laughs> like, it's always unbalanced. And so you need to guard the vision. You'll see in verse 15, he goes on in the night. He valleys, goes through everything. There's a little bit of a geography lesson around where he goes. And the officials didn't know what he was doing. And he gives you all the categories of the people that you think, oh, surely he told those guys, surely he told those guys, surely he didn't. Okay, he guarded the vision. He bides his time. Am I saying that we should all be very secretive now and be like, no, sorry, I can't, you know, inner circle stuff, yeah? No, I think, I think we're getting the point. He's in a world where, quite frankly, following Jesus is not a very popular thing in your workplace. As, as events like Pride Month come up and all these things, it's very hard to kind of figure out what's my place. And together as a community, instead of broadcasting things on email, and go, maybe we just get together and say, can you pray for me? Can we, can we just hear God on this thing? Can we develop a vision for what we could be salt and light in this thing? And let's not go around declaring a whole bunch of things. Let's do it. Let's be it. And then people will go like, well, that was different. And we'll say, yeah. Let's over-deliver and, and under-promise would, I think, be some of what holy action would look like for us. So, have you developed clarity of vision? Have you then guarded that vision? And then finally, have you then taken it to action to build carefully? Build carefully. Notice he's at night and he inspects the walls of Jerusalem. These are the walls that are broken down. This is what he's been called to do. And instead of relying on second-hand knowledge from people and, them, and hearing from them, he's gone to the place where he wants to effect change. Instead of relying on people's reports who actually lived for 70 years with this thing being happily broken, instead of hearing their version of like, yeah, it's broken, he kind of goes, no, I want to hear from God and I want to see this with my own eyes. I think everything is clear until you actually inspect it with your own eyes and you suddenly realize, oh, wait, this is slightly different. I have a friend of mine who started an NGO working with HIV orphans. For six months, he went to KZN and he lived in the orphanage. Just wanted to see what it was like. Before he launched his NGO and went into this thing, he was like, I want to be there. I want to see what the needs are. I want to see what the crisis is. I think that's wisdom. I think that's good leadership. You look at the evidence for yourself. The Hebrew words around this time are, um, or the, the, the terms in the scripture are around medical, um, a, a probing of a wound to see what needs to be corrected. That's what he's up to. And notice that he sees a lot of burnt and broken stones, something we're going to talk about just now. Final thing I'd point out from a leadership point of view is he, he building carefully, he, he takes the view that his enemies would have. He approaches the city from outside in. He kind of is going, wait, what would it look like if you were coming into it? How would it look? And he, that's, the, that's the route he took. The game, just carefully, putting ourselves in the shoes of other people, saying, what would it be like to enter my company or enter this church, or into the thing God's given me to reach people, instead of seeing it from my point of view all the time, it's like, wow, the people are not listening, get into their shoes and, and approach the city, approach the problem from their shoes, and think, how can I make it, in this case, a solid wall, but in your case, maybe a, a conveyor belt that ushers them into God's presence and the goodness you have for them. So he builds carefully, he inspects the walls, and then he calls everyone together, verse 17, um, they, they're not 100% sure, but I quite like the picture of gathering all the people, and they reckon he would have used the hill so that they can see a 360-degree view of these broken-down walls. He wants them to see the walls, and this is what he says. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. There's a leadership lesson here. I remember someone had a whiteboard marker and they kind of wrote here, 
and there. And they said the job of leadership is to define there and then move people from here to there. Clarify the vision, guard the vision, and then at the right time, reveal the vision and lead people from here to there. Now that sounds super simple. There's one thing that we always underestimate, which is that all of us, no matter the brokenness, no matter how hard it is, are actually quite comfortable with here. We always underestimate just how comfortable we are going, yeah, it's not perfect, but hey. That DIY list around your home, yeah, I know it's not perfect, but I'm quite comfortable with the brokenness, okay? Here is horrible, is what Nehemiah says. Here is horrible. Look at the trouble we're in. This is not where we want to be. Here is horrible. And then he doesn't go, you, you, you. He says, we, us, we, together, we can end this suffering. He leans in. He says, we are in trouble. South Africans, we are in trouble. Education, power, any, pick, a, pick a category. Let's not be unhelpfully naive. Let's define the truth. But then let's, let's look at there. Let's look at where we can be. Have a 360-degree view of the trouble we're in. But let's go towards the future. And what I like is he's not falsely humble. Look at verse 18. He says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. He's able to say, here, here's, here's who I am and here are my credentials and here's why I think you should follow me. There's no false humility. He's saying, no, God's with me. Here's why I'm saying it. Here's the king's words to me. Let's go. And what's the result? The result is having clarified the vision, having guarded it and now revealed it at the right time and built carefully, a group of people that for years had been happy to live with broken walls and had lived outside the city suddenly say, let's get stuck in. Let's do it. Here is horrible. We want to go there. It's going to mean time off from work, unpaid for them. It's going to mean working with a weapon in one hand and building implements in another. Next week when you come here, we're going to look at the list. You're going to see perfumers building walls. You're going to see a dad and his daughters. You're going to get a whole bunch of people going, hey, man, this isn't my Enneagram type. This isn't my strength finders. I'm not really into cement. Doesn't matter. People are climbing in because of what has taken heart of their, their souls. And you'd think, okay, Paul, it's going to be easy now, right? It's just going to be easy. Unfortunately, holy action doesn't come without opposition. Look. At verse 19, Sanballat, Tobiah, and now they're joined by Geshem. That means in the north there's an enemy, and there's an eastern enemy, and now Geshem has come from the south. They are devastated by this because they see it as political threat. They see this as a um, religious threat, authority threat. They also think commercially this might disrupt the status quo. But Nehemiah doesn't take the bait. He anticipated opposition. He guarded his heart. He anticipated, and he knows the promises of God, which he's cultivated in exile. Look how he replies in verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The city of peace is God's. And he's covenanted to return the exiles. You see, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He'd lost the temple. He'd lost the king. He'd lost the land. But what he hadn't lost were the promises of God, which he could study and which he could read. And so far away in Susa, when he looked at who God was and he measured the promises of God and he was stirred in his heart for holy ambition, he wasn't measuring life as I sometimes do by what I can achieve. He was measuring it by what God had said. And he declares those promises over the people. We're going to have a time of responding now. And my question to you as we respond is, do you have clarity? Do you have clarity around who God is and what he's placed in you? 
Or are you passively receiving what others are giving you? 